It is July 2019. At McEwen Hall in Edinburgh, seven young women step onto the stage in front of hundreds of their fellow students and are tapped on the head with the so-called Geneva Bunnet by the principal of the University of Edinburgh. These seven women are students of the medical school, but they are not up there on that stage to receive their own degrees. Instead, they are representing seven remarkable women who paved the way for them 150 years previously. This is Scotland, a podcast about history and where we made it. I'm Michael Park. It is 1869, and an essay has just been released titled Medicine as a Profession for Women, written by one Sophia Jex Blake. In it, she argues that since the education system limits women to so-called domestic crafts, they are unable to compete with men through the unfairness of the system. The essay argues further that women have a natural instinct which leads them to be able to care for the sick, and that there's no objective proof of a woman's intellectual inferiority to a man. The matter can be easily tested, Jex Blake says, by giving women a fair field and no favour. Men, being the delicate little flowers that they are, are pretty raging. Originally from Sussex, Jex Blake decided that coming north of the border was the right place for her to receive a medical education, and she applied to attend the summer's medical lectures at the University of Edinburgh. The university court were initially fine with it, and the vote passed. Then the delicate flowers reared their ugly little heads and began to bang their little drums, at the status quo being interrupted. Claude Muirhead, the senior assistant physician at the Royal Infirmary, whipped up 200 whiny-faced students, and they petitioned the court to overturn the result. The court capitulated and suggested that they couldn't take on the additional expense of teaching a separate class for women in the interests of just one lady. So, undeterred, Jex Blake writes in national newspapers, encouraging other women to apply alongside her. By the time the second application is submitted in the summer of 1869, there are five of them. By the time it's accepted by the university court, there are seven. Now all they have to do is pass the entrance exam which is no mean feat. The exam was in two parts. The first covered English, Latin and Mathematics, and then for the second each candidate had to choose two subjects from Greek, French, German, Higher Mathematics, Natural Philosophy, Logic and Moral Philosophy. 152 candidates sit the exam on 19th of October 1869. Four of the seven top scoring candidates are women. The delicate flower of educational masculinity is wilting in the sun. And the Edinburgh Seven? Well, they haven't even enrolled yet. Of course, there are petitions, signed by some of the most prominent men of the university, whose arguments seem ridiculous to us, but at the time, they, they were also ridiculous. Robert Christensen, Professor of Materia Medica and Therapeutics, tells the university court that The poor intellectual ability and stamina of women will lower professional standards. Sophia Jex Blake, Isabel Thorne, Edith Pesci, Matilda Chaplin, 
Helen Evans, Mary Anderson and Emily Bovell are now students of the venerated University of Edinburgh, whether Christison liked it or not. It is a grand thing to enter the very first British university ever open to women, isn't it? But their problems don't stop there. The university decides to charge higher fees to the women, since their class size would be significantly smaller. After all, the men can't possibly be expected to learn in the same room as women, can they? And there's a loophole. It's in the wording of the court's decision. The university's lecturers are permitted to teach women. They are not required to teach women. Jex Blake and her classmates have to arrange their own lectures. You see, there's a difference between breaking down the walls of oppression and discrimination and being accepted and welcomed into the establishment whose walls have just been knocked in. And I don't want to spend an episode knocking the attitudes of Victorian men and by proxy denigrating the achievements of these trailblazing Victorian women. But unfortunately, it was the insecurities of the pathetic denizens of the university which came to define the academic lives of the Edinburgh Seven during their time there. Male students would slam doors in their faces, howl at them, send them disgusting, threatening letters, behave aggressively and generally show a lack of grace in the face of a new world. If you want an idea of what that's like, try asking any woman that has Twitter. But that didn't really bother the Edinburgh Seven. To be honest, they'd largely expected it. What they hadn't expected was to find themselves graded on a different curve to the men. They were taking the same classes, sitting the same exams, but the teachers of the University of Edinburgh made sure to limit their academic opportunities by grading harshly and making them ineligible to win prizes. And so it is April 1870. A debate is being held by the university court on intermixing the classes and allowing the Edinburgh Seven and any subsequent female students to be allowed the same rights and privileges as their male counterparts. Professors Laycock and Christison are the arch snowflakes in this story, and their conspiracy theory-laden diatribes in the debate leads a Times reporter to remark in print, It is the strongest argument against the admission of young ladies to the Edinburgh medical classes that they would attend the lectures of professors who are capable of talking in this strain. Unfortunately, national press coverage didn't do much to quell the behaviour of Edinburgh University's whining majority, and they escalated their campaign of bullying against their female counterparts. It is Friday the 18th of November, 1870. The Edinburgh Seven are getting ready to sit their anatomy exam at Surgeon's Hall. As they approach, they find a crowd of several hundred men blocking their path. They attempt to pick through the crowd, all the while having the most vile insults thrown in their faces and being pelted with mud and rubbish. The Seven reach the gates of the hall only to find them being closed in their faces. They were left to stand in the street, facing up to a braying mob of desperate, insecure little toads who were so threatened by Seven women studying the same course as them that they came out onto the streets to cover them in the detritus of Edinburgh. The seven are eventually allowed into the hall by a sympathetic student, 
And, if you can believe it, they sit the exam. Then when it's over, they decline the offer to be led out by a side entrance and walk out the way they came in, heads held high, much to the chagrin of the braying mob. Some supportive students walked them back to their lodgings, acting as bodyguards for them as they went about their revolutionary business. You know, the revolutionary business of receiving a higher education. The Edinburgh University magazine ran an article in February 1871 which concludes, Let us hear, however, simply in self-defence, state our firm belief that it is a sign not of advancing, but of decaying civilization when women force themselves into competition with the other sex. By 1873, many more women are studying at the university, and the tide is beginning to turn towards common sense. But the Edinburgh Seven are still denied the right to graduate, despite having completed their studies. Five of the seven were eventually granted medical doctorates in the 1870s, and Sophia Jex Blake, after a period of time spent establishing the London School of Medicine for Women, returned to Edinburgh and set up as the first female doctor in the city. She established a clinic for poor patients, and as soon as Scotland started licensing women doctors, she helped establish the Edinburgh School of Medicine for Women. Scottish universities finally began accepting female undergraduates across the board in 1892. And so, it is 2019. The Edinburgh Seven finally received their degrees from the University of Edinburgh, an institution that has now firmly taken these remarkable women to its heart. Only 150 years too late. You've been listening to Scotland. It was written and produced by me, Michael Park, and is a production of Be Quiet Media. The music for every episode of Scotland is by the human scalpel himself, Mitch Bain. You can check out more of his work at mitchbain.bequiet.media. Additional voices in this episode were by Rushka Gray and Mitch Bain. Jamie Mowat does stunning illustrations for us, which you can see in our episode art. See more and buy prints at Tidlin, that's T-I-D-L-I-N dot com. Scotland is supported by Chris Lingwood and listeners like you on Patreon. You can get loads more from us for as little as $2 a month at patreon.com forward slash Scotland History Podcast. You can find out more about the show and read transcripts on our website, scotlandpodcast.net, and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram by searching Scotland, a Scottish history podcast. Thanks for listening. Look after one another. Wear a mask. We'll see you next time.